Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hello, how are you? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. How's it going out there? Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. I hope you're having an okay holiday season. I have an excellent episode for you today, a conversation with a writer named Stacy D. Flood. He has a novella out on Lanternfish Press. It is called The Salt Fields. And I had a nice time meeting him and talking with him. You're going to hear all of that in just a bit. The Other People podcast is offered freely. All 700 and some odd episodes are available to you, the listener, free of charge. The entire archive is free. It's a listener-supported show. If you like this program, you can support it for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash otherpplpod. You can also sign up for this show's official newsletter. It goes out once a week. It's pretty simple. I share the news of the latest episode. I share some links to things that I'm interested in or things that I've been reading. And you can sign up for the newsletter over at the show's official website. Just look in the left sidebar at otherppl.com. Today's episode is brought to you by the Feminist Press, publisher of the novel Margaret and the Mystery of the Missing Body by Megan Milks. Margaret and the Mystery of the Missing Body reimagines 90s adolescence, mashing up girl group series, choose your own adventures, and chronicles of anorexia in a queer and trans coming-of-age tale like no other. This is an interrogation of girlhood and nostalgia, dysmorphia and dysphoria, a debut novel that puzzles through the weird, ever-evasive questions of growing up. That's Margaret and the Mystery of the Missing Body by Megan Milks, available from the Feminist Press. Also, Megan Milks, was my guest in episode 749. Check it out. Again, Margaret and the Mystery of the Missing Body by Megan Milks, available now from the Feminist Press. So I'll try to do a uh, book update, as I've been doing. I have a novel coming out next May called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It has a cover now. The cover has been revealed. The book is a work of autofiction. And if you want to see the cover, just check out the podcast's social media feeds on Twitter, at other PPL, or on Instagram. You can see what it looks like. I am also, right now, in the process of writing an acknowledgments page. As one does. And I have mixed feelings about this. <laughs> I feel like most people enjoy acknowledgments, obviously, since they're so pervasive. They like to write them, they like to read the acknowledgments in a book. 
I don't know if I do. I don't, I, you know, to be honest, I don't know how often I even read the acknowledgments in a book. But listen, if you really need to acknowledge some people publicly, then you acknowledge them. Right? I, I don't mean to sound insensitive. I guess I just feel like it often gets a little bit overboard. That, and I'm struggling with exactly how to do it, what to say, who to thank, who not to thank. <laughs> I just want to be quick about it. And I think part of me feels like when it comes to people that I sincerely need to thank, can't I just thank them personally? Do I really need to write this thing that's going to go in the book so that everybody can see who I'm thanking? But then I guess that's the point, right? It's about public thanking. People want to be publicly thanked. I want to be publicly thanked. <laughs> Daily, right? It's a nice gesture, but I find myself thinking about it and wondering if there's an equivalent in any other profession. Even in the arts. You don't see painters writing acknowledgments and then hanging them next to their paintings or film directors. You don't see them including big block paragraphs of acknowledgments at the end of their films and the credits, but writers, uh, we feel compelled to acknowledge. We feel obligated, I think, because everybody seems to be doing it, and maybe because writing a book is such an onerous process that it usually winds up implicating other people in its misery. <laughs> I get caught up in it. And then on the other hand, uh, I guess actors, that might be the exception, is actors when they win awards. They acknowledge. I guess that's sort of what it's like. That's what it feels like. It's like an Oscar speech. I'd like to thank my agent. <laughs> uh. And, you know, I don't really like the Oscars, if I'm being honest. If I watch it, I hate watch it. It's so much bullshit. I don't like it. I don't like award shows. I don't like awards. There should be no awards for anything ever. That's my statement. Just stop with it. It's so childish. Unless I win a podcasting award, in which case it's deeply meaningful and to be celebrated. So, I'm kind of joking. I, you know, I get it. The, uh, the award stuff, it's kind of a necessary evil, right? We have to market our industry. We have to celebrate book culture. Make a big to-do about everything. But in the end, it's all so silly. Is it not? What a feverish, ritualistic, human ego dance. Do I sound grumpy? <laughs> you know, you want to know why? You want to know why? It's because it's Christmas. I'm exhausted. I don't know about you. This time of year, at the end of the year, the endless obligations, the pressures, the stress. Did you get gifts? Are the kids going to be happy? Is your wife going to be happy? Is everybody going to be happy? You got to do this. You got to do that. I know I should enjoy it, but I'm struggling. I have to go to the zoo tonight to see Christmas lights with my children. And I know I should be reveling in this, but I have zero interest in going to the zoo to see Christmas lights, to be in the crowd, just a swamp of COVID and mania. <laughs> and I get it. It's going to be outdoors. It'll probably be fine. All these poor animals. Like, what the fuck? They're already incarcerated. Their lives are ruined. And now they've got these Christmas lights everywhere. It just seems bleak to me. Leave them alone. 
Anyway, I'm gonna get it done. I've got it. I've got it drafted even. Just gotta finish it up. My my uh, acknowledgments page. I've got to acknowledge some people. That's the reality. And the other big thing is that I know I'm gonna forget someone. It's inevitable. It's it's part of it, right? You make this acknowledgments page. You write it to the best of your ability, and then you forget somebody and their feelings are hurt. They're deeply offended that you did not acknowledge them. Some kind of egregious oversight. I feel like if you start thanking your friends, it just gets messy in a hurry. Because where's the cutoff? Where's the line? It's sort of like inviting people to a wedding. Like, who's the person who just missed the cut, right? Who's the person who was almost worthy of inclusion? (laughs) Didn't quite make it. Who was almost worthy of being acknowledged publicly, but then got shut out? (laughs) I feel like I should do an entire monologue about that person. Whoever it is, I have to figure it out. That's how I'm going to spend my Christmas holiday. Anyway, that's enough out of me. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest, the star of today's show, is Stacy D. Flood. He has a wonderful new novella out on Lanternfish Press. It is called The Saltfields. I had a lot of fun meeting him. I believe he was at work when we spoke. I think he was in a conference room, if I recall correctly. He found some space. He made some time. And we had this conversation, which I am very pleased to share with you right now. Here he is, folks. This is Stacy D. Flood. And his new novella, One More Time, is called The Saltfields. It came from a lot of stories from my grandparents made the same journey about 12 years before the novel, the novella is set. And a lot of the stories that came from that experience really just intrigued me and stayed and stayed with me. Not simply what they related to me, but also the things that they wouldn't say, the things that they didn't tell, those silences and the importance of that. And so when I thought about then these characters, I wanted to bring up people who, again, came up to the uh, Buffalo area for different reasons. Everyone uh, made that journey for their own personal reasons sometimes, but also for family. And so I really wanted to capture that experience, that journey and the hope that went into that journey, as well as the anticipation, as well as the uh, not knowing, the fear, the um, just the belief that wherever they were heading was better than where they were. So this is a story of migration from south to north. Black people at mid-century, like mid-20th century. Is that about right? About right, yes. Yeah, Yeah, mid-20th. It's also about people running away, if I could put it that way, correct? It's about people who are looking for what's next for them and the idea that wherever they currently are, there's something that's better elsewhere. Like This book made me realize that I have a lot of gaps in my knowledge of... Uh, history. And I I think on the surface, you know, you go from South to North as a person of color in that uh, period of American history, there are going to be obvious benefits. But beyond that, it made me realize like, what was it actually like? You know, you go from living in South Carolina to living in Buffalo, New York, or New York City, uh, which is the track that these people are on, correct? I mean, it's like a little little bit of a mixture. And Mm -hmm. I wonder about that. Like, how were 
black. Did, did you do any historical research when you were writing this book, or did the stories that your grandparents told you uh, did they inform you know the writing or give you kind of a uh, context? How were people received? <laughs> black the, people yeah. received when they made these kinds of journeys. The stories that that uh, again um, I captured from my uh, my family uh, at the time gave a lot of the impetus for it, but then there's also a lot of research that I had to do. So in doing that type of research and really looking into it, there is then this greater idea that the importance of this journey to change lives and history, the importance of this journey to really, when they get got up to where they were, they were going quite often they may not have been sure that the jobs would actually be there. And when they made it, when they made the trip, they weren't sure that the, uh, if they were going to stay with family, that their family would be accepting of them. So a lot of that came from that, again, that, that idea of that, of hope being there. And just the idea of leaving all that, you know, going someplace again, where you may not be familiar with the, uh, with the terrain, with the climate, uh, very different, very different climate with how um, they would be received. And quite oftentimes it wasn't that there was the thought that everything was going to be fantastic when they got to the north. Quite often there were problems there too. But at least they would have that opportunity to do better. And at least their families would have the opportunity to, to do better. And at least they wouldn't have the immediate horrors that they saw being down there reflected so easily uh, up up where they were up where they were headed. Minister Peters is your protagonist, and in leaving the South to go live in the North, he's not only leaving behind all of the horrors of slavery and Jim Crow and all the all the the dark history of the American South, but he's also leaving behind. Personal ghosts. He is bereaved. He's lost his wife and daughter. So you have a character who has a lot of reasons to want to change things up. <laughs> I can imagine the tension between wanting to stay someplace that feels like home, which is the only place you've known, but also wanting to escape because it carries with it so much pain and the echoes of so much, you know, so much human suffering, you know, when you were talking to your grandparents who made this journey, what, like, can you place it in time? Like, when did they move? Around 35. 1935. Okay. So they were going from South Carolina to Buffalo. Yes. Yes. Yep. On a train. On a train. Yep. Yep. That's that, that train journey. So again, a lot of times it was send up the wife and, and children beforehand or the or the uh, grandfather would, would come up first and then send for the family so yeah they made that made that same type of type of journey all the way up did you record these conversations with them or, or no. were these just verbal like histories kind of passed Ver- down verbal histories that kind of came in fragments and what i loved about how they came to us um as as the rest of the family was in fragments wasn't things remembered things half remembered things where when the group when they got together um with others who came up also from the south to, to visit how they would share those stories and pass along things about the, the towns that they were from um how things ha- have changed or sometimes unfortunately had not so i wanted to make sure that i captured that feeling of it or those or those type of those type of stories and where it wouldn't be so much of an interview, but the feel of it, the joy when someone would, would mention a moment, the hesitation when someone would mention another moment, and at the same time, the things that weren't mentioned or the things that were spoken around. And all of that, um, I wanted to be a part of the book. I wanted it to be not so much just a history of that of that journey, but a history of what informs that journey. I, I mean, when you talk about these things unsaid, were you able to infer I mean, you know, yes. yeah. what, and, what, and, what and was it? Was, and a lot of it was just the horrors that weren't mentioned there. So the things that they would have seen, disappearances, a questioning of what happened to family members, all of that was something that really gave me more of a feeling of it than when I actually did the research. 
So I could go, I could go back and do research and find out again about uh, certain towns. I could find out about the trains, right? how the how the trains worked. I used that to really make the flavor of the narrative one that really felt as authentic as I could possibly get it, and at the same time get that idea of how that experience must have been for these for these characters. Not so much to make it more of a travel log about um, what each of the stops would would have been. So I enjoyed the silences. I enjoyed the inferences. From a lot of the work that I do in theater, I've learned to really expect when there's a quiet on the stage. I really have learned to respect when there's something that's kind of spoken around or left unsaid or deferred to, and everyone in the room kind of knows what's meant. So the story of your protagonist, Minister Peters, is one of uh, travel, moving in in the direction of hope, a better life, also moving away from grief and the horrors of slavery and Jim Crow. It is also a story of inheritance, it strikes me, because you tell at the beginning of the book the story of Minister's father, or he tells it, and his father, too, you know, had a kind of harrowing story of movement and escape. Can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about that? Is that rooted in your family history as well? Because that's pretty dramatic. No, that that portion was not. So at least at least for for my for my uh, for my experience. So, uh, but what I wanted to do was to start off the piece where the idea of what what constitutes moving forward and what you can leave behind. And I've always said that there's no such thing as an empty room, right? You can take away people, you can take away furniture, you can take away light, you can take away air, but there's always history. And there's always something that's going to come with you. So the idea that as you travel, that you can leave things behind, sometimes it may not be as true as we would like it to be. So when the um, experience of the father, I, what I wanted that to be is, is something that kind of dictates how that experience for that for the father how that then carries with the father and then carries through minister at the same time yeah there's like i feel like this happens a lot in families you know there are echoes through the generations with Mm -hmm. like repeating patterns that are a little bit hard to explain Uh, i mean the only explanation is like a bit of uh, happenstance and then genetics, you know, <laughs> but these things kind of seem to work like certain themes seem to try to work themselves out in a family line oftentimes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it's just oftentimes it's the, that experience from one earlier generation and how then they reflect things onto, onto the next. Well, yeah. Generational. There's also cultural uh, elements right. of it. I'm now thinking of the section of your book where minister and some of his you know fellow passengers on the train go to that juke joint and there was a description that struck me where you were talking about the ease with which people were comporting themselves pretty much everybody in the place is black right yes and there was like there's a line where you're talking about how at ease the black men seemed which was unusual like minister notices like one of the few times he's ever been in a room with black, like this many black men who all seem to be like relaxed and and having fun. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Without without there being that type of specter or the idea that something could impact that. So, what I also wanted to uh, get was there's the tension throughout, even when uh, ministers mostly with um, black and African Americans during, during his during his journey. There's always that tension around that something else could enter into this, into this situation that can make things a lot worse. There is kind of like a, a consistent tension in the book and a sense of menace, a sense that things could go very wrong. There's always like violence boiling beneath the surface, it feels like, or, or the threat of it, you know, coming either from within the characters themselves or or from outside forces and, and even like nature, you know, I, I, there's yeah. lots of like crocodile alligator mentions <laughs> i was like is somebody gonna get eaten by an alligator because i'm not ready for this if this happens yeah, it could be i when i did some research i did have to go down to um south carolina and uh, when i was doing the the research down there there is that feeling because again it being in some areas things being so dark not having so many uh, street lights or that type of illumination around that anything at some point could either jump out and turn thing turn a slow afternoon into something a little bit a little bit different 
Yeah. I've been in a situation like that once in my life and I was in Australia of all places in a, a rainforest and I, I was like, you know, 19 years old uh, on a semester abroad and there was a like music festival in this jungle. I mean, the sort of thing you only do when you're 19, right? I'm like, right. What, what, what am I doing there? And we missed like the last bus back to our youth hostel, which was also like in the middle of this jungle. And so we had to walk back on this like dirt road, like two lane road through the jungle, no light, none. It's called Daintree National Park, I think is what it's called. And it's the only, I want to say it's one of the only, or it's the only coastal rainforest in the world. One of the few, maybe there's an, actually, I think there's one in Washington state where you are right now. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, but it's like, it's very rare for a rainforest to abut the ocean, I guess is, right. I understand it, but this one does. And there are all kinds of estuaries and, you know, rivers and water that kind of trickles into the rainforest, but it's saltwater. And there are gigantic saltwater crocodiles in this rainforest. Oh, wow. So <laughs> my, my buddies and I were walking back and we're like, okay, I can't see a damn thing. You know, you can barely see your hand in front of your face. And you're thinking like, is there like a 600 pound crocodile like tracking us? And there was one part of the walk where the road dipped down into, you know, a little stream or river. And as we're walking across this, we all of a sudden hear like thrashing in the water. Like we hear like something moving in the water. I have never run so fast. All three of us. Like it was like kind of like uh, Keystone Cops were like bumping into each other. <laughs> I was gone, you know, like I was like, this is, I'm not going down like this. I've always said like, I, I please God, don't let me go down as a meal of all, you know, of all ways. I don't want to be eaten. Go. Yeah. Right. Oh, I can understand that. When I was in South Carolina, I went to uh, one of the islands called Lady Island just to research a little bit. And I was, it was late at night. I was on a pier um, and I'm just getting some editing, some last minute editing done. And something bumps the pier. It's and I can't. I don't know what it is, but it's big enough to to move the pier. Whatever it is, it's big enough to move the pier. And I'm thinking, okay, whatever. It's just, just something. Something may have hit right at first. I'm like, it's a dolphin. I'm like, probably not. So, and it does it again. It hits, it hits the pier. It's big enough really to shake up this very large pier. And so, I'm like, okay, I should probably go in. It's late at night. There's no one else around. It's just me out here. And as I get up to leave, one of the pages of the manuscript falls into the a wind takes it and goes into the water. Uh. And I can't remember what's on that page. So I'm like, do I need, did I edit that page? Are there notes on that page? What do I need to do? So I decide, it's like two o'clock in the morning again. I decide I'm going to lean over the railing and try to put my hand in there to get the page because it's just sitting now on the top of some reeds in the short water. And I'm, like, I'm just going to lean over and just grab it. Of course, I can't. And of course, I figure out that's probably not the greatest idea to lean over into darkened water and try to figure <laughs> out what, what, what that page was. So I go back into the house. I get a long pole. Um, it was a, uh, a broomstick. And I try again. I'm leaning over. And this time, I'm leaning all the way over to try to, try to get it. And of course, something again hits the pier. I'm like, I can't see what it is. I'm like, okay, that's not going to work. So I get a really lo a longer pole. I think it was from a tent or for a, uh, like a tiki pole, perhaps. Finally fish out the, the page. And again, all this time, the page has just been sitting on top of the water. Just as nice. Text up, just sitting there. I fish it out. There were no changes on it. I <laughs> okay. I didn't have to do that at all. I thought you were going to tell me something jumped out and bit you. No, or... see? No. But I never figured out what that was. Well... I mean, maybe that's for the best. We'll, 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 just, we'll assume it was like a, what? I guess it would have been what? What? What could it have been? I'm trying to think of what it would have been. And maybe a dolphin or a shark or some I, sort of yeah, big it, fish. It was. It was close enough to the shore that I think I was like probably wasn't something as friendly as a dolphin. But again, I don't know. You don't know. Never, 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 never figured it out. But of course, the idea of it being menacing. Is, is, there, is there a definite possibility to kind of think about it? Listen, when you're dealing with dark ocean water at night, I mean, 
you automatically have to assume that whatever it yeah. is, it wants you dead. That's what yeah. <laughs> yeah. And for some reason, I was about to give it the opportunity to, to, to get paid me up on that. Yeah, all to save a Microsoft Word page that had no corrections on it. Exactly, right? It had zero on it. I was like, oh, I could have just left that. So, okay. Well, you're kind of leading me into a line of questioning that I wanted to ask you about, which is the research process and also – since you're you were raised in Buffalo, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you you know your grandparents made this journey, and then you are, you know, generationally the product of that journey up in Buffalo. Yes. You know, yes. so that's right. you don't have any personal history in the American South. I'm wondering if you have family that remained in the South, and if you spent yes. any time in your youth visiting, and what what is your on the ground experience in the American South? So when my uh, grandparents made a journey. Again, people also, their family, oftentimes stayed, stayed down there or went west. Uh, some of them went into the Michigan area. Uh, some of them even went towards California in that area too. So quite often they would come up to visit or they would come up to see or they would come up to just relate stories and and tell a little bit about uh, what, that, what that journey was. So in that, you just learned so much about black culture, African-American culture in the South, because so much of it came up with my grandparents. Some of it is still alive in, in our culture, no matter where African-Americans may, may reside. Um, so much in the cuisine, so much in the language, so much in the speech patterns, so much in the, just so much in the art, the music, the culture uh, comes from that, comes from the South. Okay, so how, how, how did wait, how did this make you feel? I'm wondering, like, as a Buffalo boy, were you listening to this going, "Damn, I wish I lived down there," or were you thinking, like, "Thank God I was raised in Buffalo"? <laughs> there, there was a little bit of both. There was some of it where you're like, "Oh, the idea of fields and the idea of sun and the idea of little snow." I was like, "Oh, that's that's great," um, and it not being as cold, and the idea of how much just the the way in which this seemed to be a relationship to the land that at the time Buffalo didn't have. Buffalo being more industrial, whereas just the farms and the idea of uh, being one with the land was something that had a, that had an appeal. Right? At the same time, when they would speak about uh, the restrictions that they had there, when they would speak about the things that they had to be careful of, when they had, when they would talk about the areas again that they could go and the areas where they could not, um, and even when they were speaking about it decades later, they would talk about again the traumas that 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 they experienced in a couple of different ways. One that they experienced also bringing up those stories to my grandparents and how my grandparents would then relate to them, how they would change the tension in the room. How it, how it would change, how what could one time like start up as a happy story turn into one a bit more dour, and how all of that could happen just from the mention of a word or a place or a name. Yeah, they they continue to resonate, right? I mean, especially right. if it's right. really bad stuff, it's going to carry over. And I'm wondering, you know, as a kid. Because this happens, I think, to any parent, you know, it's always different contexts, but you talk about heavy stuff, whether it's, you know, the Jim Crow South for uh, uh, like a black person who came of age in the mid 20th century, or it's like some awful stuff that my wife and I are talking about in front of our kids. I, I can remember that as a child, you know, being privy to conversations that were sort of above above my head a little bit or the kind of things that parents would like to keep from kids ordinarily. Like you're always going to have some exposure to that as a child. And I think you kind of hunger for it too. You like to be, I like to be in on the, the story, you know, especially even if it's heavy, maybe especially if it's heavy. And I'm wondering how it made you feel like with regard to the environment that you grew up in, in Buffalo, uh, I think I was telling you before we got started that I came of age or I grew up in Milwaukee for the per- first part of my youth and I have fam- my parents are from Louisiana. So we mm-hmm. kind of have a similar 
split, you know, latitudinally where I, you know, we were raised in the North, but we have roots in the South. I would go back there to visit for holidays and so on and so forth. And I felt a certain sense of gratitude because so much of the racial baggage that was so on the surface in the South didn't seem to, like, it just wasn't an issue. But I have to put an asterisk next to that because I grew up in like a really white suburb. Mm. And Milwaukee has a history of being actually like a really racist town. I didn't know this as a kid. But it wasn't, it just wasn't on the, it wasn't in the air the way that it was yeah. when I would go back down south. And, you know, my grandfather didn't want us to watch the Cosby show. Things like that. You know, where you're like, wow. okay, you know. And um, now, now, of course, <laughs> with the benefit of hindsight, maybe it was good not to be watching <laughs> Bill Cosby. <laughs> but uh I don't know. So it's it's a little complicated. I'm wondering what it was like for you in Buffalo. What was the? I'm, I'm imagining that to be a pretty white place. It's it has it has a pretty good racial uh, diversity in there, even though it may be a little bit segmented. So in that sense, where there are um, sections where it's mostly African American, there's sections that are mostly white, there's sections that may be more uh, Latinx, but there you could vary. I don't say easily, but you could kind of remain in one area for a longer period for a longer period of time without really interacting with another group. So I was fortunate in Buffalo that my parents really wanted us to really have a very expansive, very expansive experience. So she wanted us to have to be very um, in tuned with African-American culture. So we went to a lot of the Juneteenth festivals and really enjoyed those. At the same time, she wanted us to know to go to what's called Albright Knox, um, which is one of the bigger art galleries in, in the Buffalo area. I'll go to the Philharmonic and just learn as well there. But growing up in Buffalo, you still did feel that type of tension. And that type of tension is, is still, was still there. Um, and it's something that you would kind of get hints of or as a child you may not understand why certain things were restricted from you or why there are certain areas that you didn't feel as comfortable or welcome but you just would be able to then wonderfully have at least my parents were able to uh, take me in um, if not make the explanation then at the same time at least uh, make me understand the importance of again that worldview make me understand that there may be others who don't hold that and at the same time make me feel comforted in the community that i was in yeah i mean like parents play such a big role yeah you know, to have parents who are kind of exposing you to a lot of different things and guiding you through all that because it's confusing for a kid kids don't know the difference right until yeah. suddenly it's there and they kind of feel a weird vibe this stuff doesn't you know hopefully doesn't become super explicit until later at least in childhood but it can it can be and it can be but it's not something where you would see it as that being sometimes the main reason and you start to question like what what was the reason behind it but it but it would it would be there like it, it would it would some something explicit would happen and you would have to deal with it react to it in, in a way but quite often um you just wouldn't have the faculties to know the reason behind it. And again, having the guidance of my parents and really a large set of uncles who are all fantastic with that as well, too, uh, from different perspectives to really guide us through. Okay. So was Buffalo, when it comes to like black migration from the South in the 20th century, was Buffalo uh, a destination? Like, I mean, it, yes. do you know what I'm saying? Like, I know like mm -hmm. I, the, the, the famous one is like, you know, from New Orleans up to St. Louis and Chicago, yes. you know, up the Mississippi, essentially. But I'm curious, like, is is was Buffalo like from the, I guess, South Carolina or the, the eastern seaboard up to Buffalo? Was that something that happened in concentration? Yes. Yeah. Buffalo, Syracuse, that area. Um, Detroit's probably the more, the more popular one that, that people that people are familiar with because of Bethlehem still. So Bethlehem Steel being one of the largest steel mills at the time, we really were looking for people. They were looking for bodies. They were looking for um, workers. So a lot of people came up to work in the steel mill. And you would work in this steel mill for hours and hours a day. And you work in it for years and years. And you got a pension afterwards. So Bethlehem Steel was really one of the um, big locations for a lot of people in, in that migration. 
Well, and also so, union jobs, I would imagine. Yes. At that time, yeah. you could get a union job. It would support you. You'd have mm -hmm. benefits. You'd get a pension, all that stuff, which, of course, right. no, probably no longer exists, right? No, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that went out went, went out for a while, and really, of course, impacted the Buffalo economy when that when that did um, when that did shut down. But you think about that possibility of again getting that pension, getting some some place where you would get a fairly decent wage and could take care of your family versus where you were coming from. The appeal is is just definite. So they made that um, they would make make that journey in a in a great great numbers. Okay, uh, and so. What what did your folks do? Like you're an artistic sort. You obviously have written this novella, but you also said some stuff about theater. I know you work in theater as well. Yeah, so some some plays up here in the Seattle area, and I have a couple that were produced uh, on the on the East Coast too as well. But yeah, theater was big for me as well as again um, short stories. Love love novellas. Uh, happened to be fortunate enough to study uh, and get my MA and MFA from San Francisco State. And did my undergrad in U at University of Buffalo in film, uh, which 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 was a good time. But my parents, uh, my dad worked for the airline, so we traveled quite a bit, which was again was 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 fortunate for us. We had we had a chance to do that. As well, um, we moved from Buffalo when I was about nine down to Phoenix, and then from Phoenix um, up to Seattle, and then then kind of. Went back to Buffalo for school, and then okay, then came back here. But there is that uh, opportunity that was opened up to me by again uh, being able to travel, as my dad did for the airline. My mom was a material specialist, so she worked for uh, Intel for a bit. She worked for um, Sperry for a bit. So a lot, of, a lot within within the tech world. But for me, art was just my my passion early on writing was, was something that really that just really captured me more than on the technical side so from a young age oh yeah oh yeah um, even f as i was a kid i would i would play with my toys and i would have tv shows so i would play with a certain toy from 5 to five thirty, and that was their show and then i would have play a show there's another another set of toys from 5:30 to 6, and I had when I like program my own little TV network, and I would only play these shows from on Tuesdays with these toys on Tuesdays, and then some of them would be on Wednesdays, and it was just something for me that really loved story, even as a young uh, young person. I'm wondering, like you you started, you said you got your undergraduate degree in film, as did I. Uh, hey. what happened there like you did some film work did you find out that you know writing was the thing that you gravitated even i guess you screenwriting or you're, you're writing plays now too so was that the case for you as a film student yes it was, it was i did my film work in buffalo it was 4 a.m um and i had to finish up my final film it was in the middle of the cold i'm trying to load a i think it was 16 millimeter camera and my fingers are getting cut i was like Maybe film is not for me. Maybe I need to think about another avenue here because this is not the enjoyable portion of filmmaking that I thought it would be. So at that point, I just I switched. And I always liked writing anyway. Um, creating, creating the scripts um, was something that was just more enjoyable to me than actually being on set or filming or anything like that. So that sealed it. Being out there that one night, I was like, yeah, I don't think the the film world is is one that I want to go into if I'm going to have to shoot this late at night in this much cold and snow for a long period of time. Well, I you're speaking my language. This is exactly what happened to me. Like I I don't think people realize or at least I didn't realize how technical filmmaking yes. is. The, these machines you got to deal with, especially back in the day, you know, you're shooting on film, you're loading right. a 16 millimeter Bolex camera or whatever yes. and I was, this was, you know, I went to college just before digital technology sort of took over and everything was edited digitally, but we were actually cutting film in my film school. I was cutting celluloid and, yeah. it, was, and it was tedious. And then <laughs> being on set and having to light everything and, you know, you got to really like machines <laughs> You gotta, yes. and you got to yeah. be, and, and moreover, you've got to be good at that sort of thing. And I never was. So I was oh, a yes. screenwriter from the jump and then switched to books when I was started to realize when I was like halfway through college that I was more into books than film but 
I didn't want to change my major because I just wanted to get out of college. <laughs> Same here. Same here because I, again, I was stayed in the dorms uh, when I was in Buffalo. And I can remember it was early April and it was snowing. I was like, okay, I should probably graduate early. I was like, you know, I would just rather create a story that one can comfortably sit down in a room with a cup of coffee um, in front of a fire and enjoy uh, rather, rather than putting this all together. Did, did you ever have an, uh, an impulse to be a performer? Not really. I don't think I, I've tried a couple of times, but I think that I just have, particularly coming from, um, from theater, such an appreciation of the talent that goes into that. Um, of the work, the absolute work that goes into that. Um, so I've always also also been really appreciative of the insights that the that those um, actors and those, those performers are able to give to give to my work. So I dabbled a couple of times. I think there was one play where I played the Count from Sesame Street, uh, and that was fun. Wait, beyond... the Count from Sesame Street wound up yes. in one of your plays? No, not mine. It was, oh. Actually, was it? No, it was, yeah, it was like this 24-hour play competition or performance. And uh, I had a chance to act in it one year, and I did it. I was like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll do it. And it was a chance where I actually played the Count um, in, in one of them. It was about a 10 minute thing. And that was my, that was the breadth, I think, of my full acting career. But then when I look at, again, the dedication of those who professionally do it, yeah, I just, I'll probably just leave that up to those, to those talents. So how many, how many plays have you written? Oh, my gosh. Uh, probably, I say 20. But I also wrote a lot of short stories too. So uh, when I was in, in, my undergrad and grad mostly focused on short stories. A couple of also no novellas, but mostly short story stories were, were my thing. But uh, when I came up to Seattle and started getting to plays, uh, one of the great things about the playwriting class that I was able to take was working on 10-minute plays. So they're very short. Um, there doesn't seem to be a long time commitment, but you get to hone your craft in a way. That you have a limited amount of characters, and you have to make sure that you're able to relate a full arc of a story in such a small period of time. So that also helped uh, when I was writing The Salt Fields and being able to just say, I really wanted to be that compact type of feel. Um, and I always have such a pre an appreciation of the novella. I really was dedicated to making sure that, that it, was, um, it was a novella. So when I was working on plays, a lot of them turned out to be the, on the shorter side. Then I learned so much from other playwrights and I learned so much from reading plays from August Wilson to just to also just to, to Shakespeare even. You learn about pacing. You learn about opening up the story a little bit more. You learn about how important every character is on that stage, whether it's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf or Where's Music Man. Everyone on the stage is very important to what's going to happen and what, what people are going to see and what that experience is going to be. So at that point, I started writing longer works. And those longer works just started to expand out character a little bit more. I was able to expand out story a little bit more. But the most of my collection is probably shorter plays. But the longer ones, yeah, I think I was able to really take a lot of that effort and a lot of that work and, work and put it into the novella as well. So wait, like, I, I get like the, the – I've never heard of this because I, I have no theatrical background at all. But shorter <laughs> plays, I can see how that would be useful in an academic environment where it's like you write a 10-minute play – and like you said, try to tell a, a full mm. narrative arc. It's like almost like flash fiction for theater. And yeah. I'm wondering, like, do these things outside of an academic context, does this kind of thing get performed on a regular basis? Yeah, it does. There, there are some collections, oftentimes within the fringe festival community, um, a lot of those will happen. So there'll be like a collection of smaller plays that people will kind of weave together or each a longer play, which is set up uh, series, as a series of vignettes. But I just have learned to appreciate that so much, um, just the, the shorter plays, as well as the one acts, as well as now the current trending of having a play without intermission, having um, the no act stretcher will be like a continuous 90 minutes quite often. So a lot of that then does make you think about each scene, think about each character, think about what you have, and nothing feels extraneous. Um, and nothing feels that it is simply there as a luxury. 
And I just really liked that approach. And I really liked the idea that if I'm going to have a character say a line and another character react to it, I only have a certain amount of time. So that reaction has to be central. It can't just simply be the answer to a question or it can't simply be direction or exposition that, that the audience needs to know. It has to be within that character, inform the story, within that character's voice, inform the story, and also inform what's going to happen next. So the practice of that was, was, was really important for me. So you've talked about novellas, you've talked about short plays, you've talked about short stories. You seem to be drawn to the short form. I'm curious to know if you've thought about writing a novel. I think ever, <laughs> that was in the back of my mind as, as well when I think about film. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to write a novel. I, I just really, really am drawn towards the novella. Even my favorite books are mostly novellas, right? I'm mostly this short of form because of the epanalepsis that they have, because of the structure that, that they can imply, um, because there's just so much breath in a small uh, period of time and the way in which, by design, um, they have to capture a story or a feeling or a theme or an idea quite quickly uh, and then leave you again wanting to, to repeat the experience. Many short stories, many novellas, um, and also to a degree many plays encourage you to see them again, encourage you to read them again, um, encourage you to go back in for the feeling not so much that there's something that you missed, but that there's something more there to explore as you delve into it a little bit more deeply. So I always like that idea within works. When I think about the, a novel, I think just for my sprinter-like mind, if I probably is not when, when it's going to go along with it, but I do like the, um, I just do like the novella form so much. Yeah, you know, I kind of get that. I've had the conver- I've had a conver- you know, conversations in recent times where I've talked about how like if your if your book is longer than 200 pages, it could be totally fine, but you better have a good reason for it, mm-hmm. basically. And most stories, I think, or most novels that I read, I feel like could always you could always make a pretty strong case that they could cut. Not always, but a lot of the time. And so I'm sort of with you on feeling an affection for compression, you know? That's definitely what's happening in a short story and to a bit of a lesser extent in a novella. But you have, and, and you know what? It, you have this film training, and I guess the same would probably be the case for writing for the theater where you have a kind of page count that you're working with. With screenplays, you're definitely at like 120, you know, yeah. 120 yeah. or less. So right. you right. kind of enforced compression in those situations. So that seems to be something that has been with you from the jump. You know, you, you've always been kind of drawn to that. But I just love the idea as well of expansion through that compression. So it's not so much that there's something missing or by or it feels like it's rushed, but by the silences, by what's not there telling so much in the novella and also a lot of the, the novellas that that I enjoy there are these moments where you may ask yourself well what happened to a character or what happened to the rest of the scene or anything like that and by leaving that open it's not for the reason of trying to obscure something but more for saying that that leaving that open opens up the the work for that type of interpretation that's important for the themes that you, that you want to express um, that the idea of something being incomplete doesn't, necess- doesn't necessarily mean that it's unfinished. Yeah, no, I get it. It's like trying to say is, it's like uh, having a lower page count but not feeling like anything's missing. Right. And it's, it's, like, it's like short but heavy. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. Because again, if I think about William Maxwell's So Long, See You Tomorrow, if I think about To the Lighthouse, if I think about, even if you think about Gatsby, right? Um, if you think about Old Man in the Sea, um, if you think about uh, The Bluest Eye, what's not there says so much about what is. And so, and how, and it informs it to such a degree to the point that when, you, when it's over, quite often you want to read it again simply to experience it, not because you feel like there's something you're lacking. It's hard to do. It's hard to get right. I mean, you could probably have a debate about this forever. Is it harder to write a 700 page novel or is it harder to write like a really powerful 120 page novella? 
I don't know. I sure. guess it, I guess it's all hard, but I think <laughs> when you're dealing with when you're dealing with a lower page count, you know, the words matter more, right? There's less wiggle room. Yeah, and I always appreciate that as a reader too. Um, I appreciate that every turn of event, every sentence, every phrase feels like it's earned its space on the page. Um, it feels like it's something where um, it has depth and it has progression and it has um, the feeling that there is more. What's coming is appropriate from what you've already read. And I've always loved that um, when I in, in any reading experience, whether it's a longer novel or whether it's a, a shorter novella. I think that's something that I've always appreciated in my reading. Okay, so you are at Buffalo. You're a film student. You have this frigid night in the cold epiphany where you realize that you don't want to load Bolex cameras nope. for the rest of your life. Yeah, exactly. And then... Uh, you what you come out west like what like i want to just track the yeah. your creative biography like when did you start to write fiction and um you know how did you you went on to get your masters in san francisco yes so my fiction probably started in high school i i just started doing some some short stories and writing and even before that more than likely but I, but it was mostly short stories that had to do with variations on the materials that I was already reading. Like, as a kid, loved, of course, uh, Star Wars and would write about um, the further adventures of Vader. I, mean, I was really I was, a, was a Vader fan. My, or... my son is huge into the dark side. I mean, like, that's like, <laughs> it's almost like worrying my wife and I were like, is this okay? But you I... seem, you seem very sunny. It looks like it worked out for you. So it, it, it did, it did, but it, I can understand your concern. I can understand <laughs> your concern. I, I, I can feel that. So yeah, but I, but just loved, um, again, Lord of the Rings, Dune, um, any type of, uh, comic that I could get my hands on, all of the the Batman DC stuff um, was really big. So I really kind of started out younger on that. Then then started creating my own type of um, characterizations and and narrative and stories, kind of in high school, short story. Then college as an undergrad, I was very fortunate enough to get into a course my freshman year um, with Irving Feldman, who was a poet, I think he went on MacArthur as well, um, up in Buffalo. And just started to write short stories, understand the pacing of a short story, what the short story needs. Then finished up my work in Buffalo, went back to Seattle for a, for a bit, then went to school down in San Francisco, San Francisco State, again, when I get my uh, MA and MFA, then just came back up here to the Seattle area. And, been, and, beloved. and that's when I started really, when I came up to the Seattle area where, where I really started to, to get into more and more of the... Uh, theater type of work okay but san francisco you got two master's degrees yeah well it was an ma that's their first start out and as an ma and i think technically an ma in english then an mfa in creative writing stacked one on one on top of the other so it was the ma and then i just continued on and got the mfa after that okay and you were writing fiction obviously in the creative writing mfa yeah had some great instructors there loved the experience and what I was very fortunate with is is to have a group of other writers and a group of friends that I can come away with and who, are, again, to this day, we still talk about writing and we still go over each other's work and we still appreciate each other's work. And we can, and can still be honest with each other about what's going to work, what's not going to work. And that is just, that was worth it. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, there's been like, I feel like in recent days, there's been like once again, like there was an, uh, some online static about the import of MFA programs and what they're doing to American letters and all this stuff. And, you know, I got an MFA and my relationship to it was really practical. Like I needed a place to go hide out and write. And <laughs> yeah. in, in that sense, it was great for me. Uh, educationally, I don't think anybody can really teach you how to be a writer. I think you have to kind of learn that on your own through trial and error and reading a lot. But uh, a, a bigger part of it, uh, or another big part of it, is like you were saying, this community that you can develop by being in a room with other people who do this, other nerds. It's hard to meet other writers 
generally speaking, because everybody's sort of squirreled away, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I remember it that way. I remember what a relief it was to me to be in a room with other people who are like this. <laughs> and, it, and, it's, and it's so valuable. People who take the craft seriously, who are interested in it, and quite often, um, having been away from it for a bit, I know of other people who are trying to write, which it just doesn't have that, they don't have that type of encouragement. Right. They don't have that type of community. And I try to build it up for them as best I can. But just having that was just so crucial. Even if it's only a couple of days a week, just to have that time can be can be a goldmine. Yeah. I mean, just like a, like a relief. Like, you know, it's like uh, you don't have to feel so alienated. Uh, I know you can build up a writing community outside of an academic context, but I don't know. I feel, I feel like that debate over MFAs gets exhausting. Um, you know, it is a racket. It is a racket, you know, like it is kind of a racket, especially if you're incurring huge student loan debt. I don't know how great it is for people in that sense, but you know, just in terms of being able to go do your work and meet some other writers and hopefully get some decent instruction, there are worse things in the world. Exactly. Exactly. And I always say to have that type of expectation right? to, to come in and say, this is important to me because it's going to give me the time to write. It's going to give me that community that I can, I can write in and build things up. When you come in with a different expectation of this is going to, at some point, give me my national book award, or this is going to be my stepping stone to the, to my Pulitzer, or I'm going to learn everything about the publishing industry in a couple of years. I think there's more disappointment when, when people come in with that with that expectation, with that thought, or, or like you're saying, I'm not really interested in reading other people's work or, or doing my own type of exploratory writing. I just want people to tell me that I'm good. Like, I think, I think, I think that's when, that's when the, the experience types, types of, can, can fail for, for a lot of people. Right. Yeah. I always put it like, if you think you're going to be made into a writer by an MFA program, yeah. It's probably not going to be a great experience, but if you're yeah. already kind of working at it on your own, then it can be a nice little supplement. Exactly. Exactly. I think that is so important to put in a lot of that work prior to getting there and getting the habits down, um, getting your writing habits down, getting how important it is to you and trying to keep that. Even when you leave the MFA program, quite often time, of course, life's going to happen and uh, you end up getting the, the day job. But if you can find time to just remember how important writing was to you, and if you can find that community that's going to remind you how important writing is to you, and you can carry that for years forward, then I think that you can get a lot of the value um, out, of, out of that experience. So are you working on anything now, or are you just kind of reveling in the salt fields? I am, and I, I have the intention of what it's going to be, but you never know. I've, I've gone into things where I've gotten a hundred pages in and just thrown it away. Um, I think that's just, that's just part of the process for me. I start things out longhand and I have to fill up at least one section of a three subject spiral notebook before I start. So if I have one section of that, then I know, okay, I know I have that, that I have enough to actually just start. What do you mean you have enough to start? So you fill up the first section of the notebook and then, yep. then, and then, then you start. start. Yeah, yeah, then I can type something in. Right? If I don't have, I can figure out, okay, now I have enough. And I go back and I read that and I feel like I have enough to start a story. Oh, you mean have you have enough to, to start typing? Start typing, yep. I have enough stuff to start typing or enough to just read it or reread it and decide I'm going to just work on it some more. I have enough of, a, of an idea. If I don't, if I only have a page or a couple pages, I'll put it, put that section down and I'll just leave it till next year or the year after that or the year after that or the year after that. So I have plenty of spiral notebooks that are just sitting empty with only one page in them or two pages in them that may not turn into anything. So what I'm currently writing now may be something, may not turn, out, may not turn into anything. I have this ongoing pirate story that I could still type. That may have been, been what I work on next. Who knows? Um, but it's just going to be something that I'm just interested in. Uh, it's about Parks, Seneca Village in New York, and anesthesiologists at this point. Okay. Well, that sounds interesting. <laughs> I will wish you well on it. Uh, are you at your day job right now? Is that where you're recording from? Yes. Yeah. Because the offices, of course, during this time, are pretty empty. 
So well, actually, all of your coworkers are standing behind you. I don't know if you know this, but they have been. The entire uh, the entire uh, IT department at his office <laughs> is now encircled him, and they are holding hands. For those of you listening, and they are swaying gently behind him. <laughs> Well, listen, Stacy. Uh, it's nice to meet you. Congratulations on your novella. I will wish you the best of luck on um, the next project, the next play, whatever it happens to be. I appreciate you making the time to talk. No, thank you so much. Thank you for just presenting this resource and for making other people so fantastic. All right. That is Stacy D. Flood, and his novella is called The Salt Fields, available now from Lanternfish Press. You can find Stacy on the internet at stacydflood.com. You can follow him on social. He's on Instagram. I believe he's on Facebook. You can follow him on Twitter at Stacy D. Flood. Again, the book is called The Salt Fields. Available now from Lanternfish Press. Go get your copy right away. The Other People Podcast is offered freely. Support the show at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Tip your server. If you would like to write to me, the email address for the show is letters at otherppl.com. The Other People Podcast has its own YouTube channel. Did you know that? Go to YouTube, search for the show by name, Other PPL, with Brad Listy, and subscribe to the channel. It's free. Every single episode, the entire archive of this podcast is on YouTube. Check it out. The Other People Podcast has its own app. It, too, is free. It's a great way to listen. Check out the Other People app wherever you get apps. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter over at the show's official website, otherppl.com. You can follow the show on Twitter, at otherppl, and on Instagram, at otherppl.podcast. If you would like to help the show out a bit, if you have two minutes of time to spare, you can go to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you listen, rate and review the show. It really helps because when there are a lot of ratings and reviews, it the algorithm changes and more people can find this podcast so more people will listen. You know what I'm saying? Rate and review the show if you would, please. So I'm going to go work on my acknowledgements page, figure out who I'm going to acknowledge. Happy holidays to you. I'm I'm then going to go to the zoo and uh, walk around in the lights and just bask. Just bask in the holiday spirit. Glowing. Glowing.